Welcome to the Book a Week podcast, jointly hosted by the SEPT University Library and the Center for Research on Architecture and Urbanism. Hi, and welcome to this episode of a Book a Week podcast. I'm Sunaina Shah. I'm a practicing architect based in Ahmedabad. My research interests lie in the areas of architectural practice, history and theory and it is through these that I engage with the built world. I am particularly interested in issues related to modernity, art and architectural history, cultural studies and social theory. Today I am delighted to be here with Professor Catherine Asher. She is an authority and a very distinguished scholar on Mughal India. She teaches at the Department of Art History at the University of Minnesota and is surely familiar to anyone who's interested in Islamic art and architecture or South Asian art and architecture. She has published innumerable books and articles including The Architecture of Mughal India and India before Europe. She has also worked on the successors and the predecessors of the Mughals and the subject of our discussion today is her recent book titled Delhi's Kutub Complex The Minar Mosque and Meroli published by Marg in 2017 This book traces the history of the complex and discusses the evolution of the entire site of Meroli right from the roots of its inception to the present day In doing so the book sets a great example in how one could look at and study monuments and their changing significance through time. Hi Kathy, we are honored to have you here with us and a very warm welcome to you. Wonderful to be here and uh, so nice and a welcome to you and all the listeners. Thank you. I would like to get started with something that I find very interesting about the book which is that it tries to understand the monuments not only through its historical past but also through the histories of today or the more recent histories this we do not see very often within scholarship on art and architecture in india why was it important for you to look at these monuments in this light um i think i felt very strongly that since they changed so much over time i mean even the initial patrons changed the monuments dramatically if we think about the history of the monuments from their inception up through today they've gone through multiple changes they've gone through for example their their first appearance their enlargement then we think they may have been fairly ruined uh, by the invasion of of Timur and his sacking of the city we have the moguls who pay a little less attention to them although um and then we um have a period of british intervention where there's quite a bit of interest in that whole landscape of mauli the kutub complex we get the idea then of turning it into a monument mm. instead of something that is a living functioning mosque um sufi complex all the things that you have around it that is turning it into a tourist display 
And then at the time of independence, we see Gandhi and other figures using it as part of the uh, Quit India movement. And then today, we have quite a bit of controversy over it. Um, I was told very recently by one of my former students is the Guptas who built the Kutub Minar. And so I think we need to think about it in larger context and realize that many buildings change. Uh, the original context, the original idea that the builder, the architect, the patron had really doesn't necessarily work decades or centuries later. Right. And yet the monument is there. You could tear it down, but perhaps it has a new life, a new, new use. And so to think of something as not static, but continually evolving and changing, I thought was a more interesting way to go about a project than simply say, hey, this is what these guys built in the late 12th century, and that's it. So that's part of what I tried to do. Yes, yes, I think that's beautiful, and thank you for that. Um, could you also tell us a little bit about the reason behind the title and the focus of the book, The Minar, The Mosque, and The Meroli? How did this come about? Um, well, I was approached by Marg to write this book, and they I think they thought I mean, that I was just going to write on the Qutub complex, and I think they really were thinking mostly of the Qutub Minar. But it seemed to me that it was very important to understand a larger landscape. And so what I really wanted to do was think about the mosque, the minaret that gets built a little bit later than the initial mosque, and the importance of what we call Maruli, that is the surrounding area, which when the Gurud forces came in, was largely a military garrison. Um, it had been a former capital, but really not a major capital. It had been more of a hinterlands kind of headquarters. Why was this area important? Why did it attract Sufis? It attracted not just the well-known Bakhtiar Paki, who came about the same time as the initial um, Gorg forces, but it attracted, as we see over the centuries, a very large number of different Sufi organizations. Why was that important? I think uh, that doing that made the monument more uh, vital. That is, it is just a bunch of ruined stones, which is pretty much what it is today, with the exception of the minaret but it gave it a much larger context. And there had been guidebooks written on this mosque complex, but I thought what I wanted to do was give something, I wanted to flesh it out more. And I actually learned a huge amount. Um, when I started doing it, I thought, okay, I know the early part and that won't be that much of a challenge. But then when I started trying to learn about the especially the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries, and then beyond. I had no idea of how rich the history of that area was until I started really working on it. The monuments have been discussed in other books as single entities, but there hasn't really been that much of an attempt to 
weave the entities together and understand how they functioned in terms of politics, in terms of maybe everyday everyday worship. And so that was one of the things that I wanted to look at. I also wanted to look at the diversity of the area. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the temple, Yogmaya, um, built to the tutelary deity of the original city of Delhi, is still a very important temple. I wanted to include that. I wanted to include the later Sikh material and some of the later Christian and even neo-Buddhist material as well mm. to not just see it as a Muslim site, but as something that had communities that were interacting in multiple manners. So that was part of what I was trying to do. And then I liked the idea of three M's in the title. Yes, I mean, um, I think that and that worked really well. Could you expand a little bit on how Mehroli stands in respect to Delhi and what made it the chosen site? Well, that's a really interesting question. And what made it the chosen site is something that I haven't really quite come to terms with in that it's not next to the river. Hmm. You have a problem of water. Of course, you know, the tradition of step wells is, is already established in this area. So that's not really a surprise. I suspect that probably malaria was a problem. And so to be right next to the Gemini was probably not as desirable as imagined in um, sort of later times. It, as we said, it had already been established by earlier um, dynasties. And so to build upon what was already there makes sense. The area is in some ways naturally defensible because there's a lot of rocky outcrops. Um, and so you can hide an army in those areas. Um, once the minaret was built, you could see armies from a huge distance. You might not actually see the army, but you would see the dust that the um, horses and other animals, perhaps elephants, uh, were, were stirring up. So it became a good place for a number of centuries as as a lookout, because we have to remember that the minaret, which was at the time that it was completed, um, the world's tallest minaret, was a, a watchtower. It was not, I think we think of, watch, of minarets as, as um, places for the call to prayer, but in fact, even the first balcony of the Qutub is really actually too high for that. So, and that seems to be part of what we think of Mowgli as being very far south in Delhi. But if you think of it in terms of what was going on in the late 12th, 13th, and 14th centuries, everything else was really very far north. And that area wasn't built up until the last half of, of the 14th century. So until then, the area around Maruli and then towards the east, um, and then a little bit towards the, the northeast where um, various cities were built. That was the, the heartland of what we can think of now as Old Delhi as opposed to 
the old deli that we think of as being the old mogul deli. Uh, Maruli certainly was established and really until, as I said, much later, until the later 14th century, remained the central part of that city. Mm, Right. What you said about minarets was very interesting. I mean, the minar here is the most iconic and sort of the best known element of the entire complex. I'm very interested in the symbolism and the significance of building minars as an element independently and not as a part of a monument, as you see later on, as you said, you know, as announcements for prayer. Could you tell us about minarets and especially the 12th century minarets? I mean, you know, Ebba Koch wrote an article titled Copies of the Kutub Minar. I suppose what I'm asking you here is what is Kutub a copy of and how does it uh, connect itself to the Ghaznavids and the Gurids of Central Asia? Who, who are these people and what are their connections or contributions to this structure? Um, well, the Kutub Minar is, uh, let's just start with the name, which you didn't ask me about, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Yes. Um, the name is a later name. It's, it was adopted sometime probably in the 13th or 14th century, and it's a reference to Kutubin Bakhtiar the Sufi, mm. who established himself in very close proximity to the original mosque, which of now the Kutub is a part of it. Um, so in the inscriptions on the mosque, it's simply called a minar. So it was just a minaret. It, was, it didn't have the name that it has today. But minarets, freestanding minarets, are a long-standing Islamic tradition. The earliest minarets were not used for call to prayer. They were watchtowers, possibly modeled after lighthouses. Mm. In fact, ones on the coasts were had multiple uses, both lighthouses and watchtowers. In some mosque complexes, especially in Iran, some minarets became attached to the mosque, but those are usually when you have more than one, and they're made to make the structure look symmetrical. Hmm. In the Ghaznavid and Gurid tradition, you largely have freestanding minarets. The most famous one had been built by the brother of the Gurid ruler who established himself in India, Mohammed hmm. um, bin Sam. And he had built, at that time, the highest minaret. It's located in a place called Jam in Afghanistan. Mm. And it wasn't even known to the outside world until um, about 70 years ago, which might sound to you, being super young, as a long time ago, but actually... Almost all historical monuments were known by the 18th century. So this gives you an idea of how remotely situated it was. It was in, or it still is, um, in a remote valley in Afghanistan. And it marked the summer headquarters of that particular sultan. 
it definitely was a watchtower. Mm-hmm. And so, too, the so-called Kutub Minar mm-hmm. is also used as, or originally was used as a watchtower. Mm-hmm. Uh, today, you cannot go inside the minaret at all, mm-hmm. but use the public used to be allowed to the first tier, and that was pretty tall. Um, I once was given permission by the Archaeological Survey of India to go to the very top, which was quite a climb, let me tell you. Yes. But it, it was quite interesting to see how far you could see. When I um, went to the top of the minaret, it was before um, Delhi was full of all sorts of high-rise buildings, um, skyscrapers, which, you know, today, of course, it's full of. But you could see an enormous distance. So you could really understand how um, it was used as a watchtower. In, in, the, in the 80s, um, when I was once living in Defense Colony, which is what we call South Delhi, on Sundays when factories weren't operating, you could actually see the minaret from South Delhi. So that gives you an idea of why it both became a visual icon, mm. but also why it would have been used as a watchtower. Right. The shape of the Kutub, the lower, the first floor, is an alternating rounded and sharp projecting flange that goes around the entire circumference. That shape was used in a now no longer surviving minaret somewhere in Afghanistan. Hmm. Um, so the shape, the very shape is modeled on earlier ones. Um, although the very famous minaret I've just been talking about, the one in Jam, the very remote, had a completely round base. So it isn't just a simple copy. Yes. It's an interpretation of earlier minarets, but this one not made of brick, which is the building material in Central Asia and Iran, because there aren't very many stone quarries. It's made of red sandstone. And then as we get closer to the top, faced with white marble. So that is an Indian innovation, the use of stone to build a freestanding minaret. Right. A freestanding minaret has a spiral stairwell inside um, so that one can ascend to the top. Right. Wow. You know, thanks for telling us about its connections to, to Afghanistan and Central Asia. I am very interested in what you touched upon at the end. Um, how does it relate to or what kind of connections does it have to the indigenous architecture of the region, you know, the Kutub complex being amongst the oldest of Islamic monuments in the region, how does it get influenced by by things around it? Well, it, if we want to talk about the mosque complex, yes, the mosque complex, as we all know, was the original one, the first phase, was built of reused material. Now, this is a long-standing Muslim tradition to build a the first mosque of a newly established area. One used already existing materials because 
in Islam, two things were essential. One was to have a mosque so the ruler's name could be read in the Friday prayer, which then legitimized that ruler. Mm. So the minute the first phase of this mosque was finished, which would have been by about 1196, 97, everything else then after it is newly constructed. So if you look at the second phase of the mosque, you see that the pillars built by the ruler Tutmush no longer have the rich carving that you see on the earlier pillars that were reused, um, probably from temples, but certainly from earlier structures. They're very plain. They have no designs on them at all. But what is remarkable and what is pr- probably one of the most exciting um, sort of, I don't know what exactly to call it, pieces of the monument, I guess, is the freestanding screen that the first ruler, that is Ibeck, the military general who was left in charge, built in front of the first phase of the mosque a magnificent stone-carved screen. And there you really see the influence of earlier Indic material. For example, um, the registers that you might see on a temple that would go sideways are put on this screen, but they're made so that they are vertical to follow the structure of the screen. The artisans who were in charge of the screen were basically told by their patrons to make something that looked like an arch. They didn't know how to make an arch because Indian building techniques, traditional ones, used all post and lintel construction. I would like to make it extremely clear that one type of building is not superior to the other. Right. There are simply, simply different modes of construction. Yes. If you think of the monumental temples that Indic builders built, they're phenomenal. Okay. Yes. Yes. But the the clever artisans didn't actually know how to make a true arch, but they made a structure that looked like one using the traditional techniques of post and lintel. If you look at the carving on the screen, you'll see that there are remarkable lotus flowers on it mm. that are carved very much in the Indic tradition. There is a lotus creeper that weaves itself through the Arabic writing, the Arabic calligraphy on it. Um, and so you really, really see the earlier traditions being brought to life in an entirely new manner. It is an extraordinary example of craftspeople working in traditional modes, but doing something that they've never done before and coming up with a remarkable, innovative artistic creation in doing this. Um, and then later phases uh, begin to use, for example, a white marble, which has been used for a long time, especially in Jane buildings. And 
then the use of red sandstone, which of course had been used in, um, under the Krishans in a very large way. There was a continuous evolution of styles. And of course, by the time we get to, let's say, the 16th century, you can't really say that these things are Islamic or Indian. They become part of a larger pan-Indian taste, um, which is what we, we see with much of the complex. Right. Okay, so since we also talked briefly about the changing lives and the changing perception of monuments through time, how do you think the Mughals viewed the Kutub complex? Was Babur aware of these structures, for example? And what about the Mughal rulers that succeeded him? Um, Babur, in his memoirs, does not write about the Kutub complex. But he does visit the shrine of Bhakti Arkaki, mm. which is next door. So he's obviously acutely aware of it. Mm. Actually, that's not quite true. He does visit the mosque. He says he visits the old mosque. He's aware of these of these structures. He makes basically a tour of Delhi, and he writes about his various stops. Akbar and Humayun uh, don't mention anything about the complex, but uh, Humayun, remember, is barely there. He is... Um, mostly trying to establish himself as a legitimate ruler. He's basically forced to leave India, mm. comes back for a very short while, and dies. Akbar spends most of his time consolidating an empire, and I think he's less interested in the Kutub complex than making his own statement with new buildings, which he does very successfully. Right. The Emperor Shah Jahan builds a hunting tower in Palam, which, believe it or not, is not very far from today's international airport, which was then a great hunting ground. And he builds a, a hunting lodge where he has a replica, a smaller replica of the Kutub built as his lookout for animals. Um, it's in a terrible shape today. Uh, it's nestled in between a whole bunch of sort of startup buildings. Um, it's hard to find, but it still exists. I think Epper writes about it in the article that you had mentioned earlier. Yes. But the Later moguls really show interest not only in the Kutub complex, but in Maruli itself. The, the later mogul emperors actually build a summer palace that's connected with the Darga Bhaktiar Khaki and are really establishing themselves in, in Maruli. I'm particularly interested in the in the sketch by George Francis White. You know, we this is 19th century. We see the complex and the minar as this object in the middle of nowhere in with with vast openness all around. And by then, Delhi was surely buzzing and chaotic. And I would think that until this time, in terms of site situation, the complex did not change much since the minar is towering over everything else. 
um would you talk to us about this time and how did meroli stand in relation to delhi um meroli definitely was a uh it was a village a very active village it had lost its importance as a great um a political center but it continued to have multiple sufi orders that were um establishing themselves and living there the last several moguls as i mentioned established a summer palace down there and at the same time as probably a counter to the establishment of this mogul summer palace the british resident of delhi thomas metcalf built himself a summer home um in an old mogul tomb mm. and he didn't just build a summer home he built <clears throat> a vast estate that he he filled with all sorts of what what are called follies that is sort of architectural embellishments that had virtually no meaning just they were decorative right. he built a voting pond um as part of this estate he allowed um um couples who were on their honeymoons to stay there as one of their great treats now in his writings he complains that there is nothing that the vista is absolutely flat that there is nothing whatsoever to see which cannot be true yeah. because we've seen enough of the various um, drawings of the complex at this time as well as early photographs that show us that there was a great deal of up foliage now we know that the british at this time had started to turn the complex into a tourist site and there was a, a bungalow built for tourists to stay in it's no longer there the current one is not the one that that it was built little platforms were built so that tourists could view the monument now by tourists they meant british tourists mm. and the occasional upper class indian mm. everything was impossible to try to discourage uh lower class indians from using the site or even going through it but we do know that the kutub minar itself was a site of refuge for one of at least at least one of metcalf's multiple children evidently his daughter used to climb to the top to eat mangoes evidently her father couldn't bear to see women eating soft fruit why is that you don't know but evidently so we do know that there certainly was this british use of the site and then over time um as the archaeological survey takes over they start to make carriage entrances into the site they start to cut off originally there's a road that went right through the site um that divided the monument in half basically um things like that were were closed down the area became increasingly landscaped and of course as i think probably know the s the s i claims um that they do not 
and make any attempt to try to recreate a landscape, but rather try to make a landscape that will appeal to visiting public today. Mm. Green grass lawns that you see, and all that has nothing to do with the original conception of the site. Right. Yes, it is. It is crazy to think that in India, with so much history and so many magnificent monuments, that this is the second most visited site, only second to the Taj Mahal. Um, what do you think contributes to this popularity? What about it pulls people to it? In fact, at the beginning of your introduction, you asked this very question, and I wonder if you have an answer for that. I continue to think about this question. I'm not exactly sure what the answer is. One thing I do notice when I go to the site is that there's always hordes of school children there, which would add to the numbers considerably. Although there are many tourists, Indian, foreign, I mean, it's... I, I was wondering, I was thinking today that perhaps one of the reasons that school children are brought there, let's say more than Humayun's tomb, which I know you like better, but there's so many different things at the complex, at the Kutub complex, that it's it, in many ways to the uninformed tourist, there's many things to look at as opposed to a single magnificent structure. I think many of the people who go to the Kutub are also going to Humayun's tomb. I have no doubt about that. Right. There's the entire DDA gardens that are outside of it, which have so many of the later structures, the 15th, the 16th, the 17th century structures. Um, that I mean, that could be part of it. I still have difficulty explaining why it has such huge numbers. It perhaps is seen as a genuine outing out of the city as opposed to being in the middle of a city that's super busy. It would be extremely interesting to survey people who go and see yes, what yes. they think. I think one of the things I'm thinking of is that there was, an, there was a book um, written a while ago called Tourists at the Taj. And local um, Muslims were interviewed, among many other people. And one of the things they said was, basically... It used to be really fun. We used to be able to come here and play games and to talk and to have picnics. And now all we're allowed to do is sit and look. I'm just wondering in some ways if the Kutum, which is a lot less restrictive yes. than some of the super, you know, like the Taj or maybe even Hamayun's tomb, yes. that allow... Um, more activities to go on at the site. That could be one of the reasons for many local tourists. I wouldn't say that's a reason for international tourists, but certainly for local tourists. Yes, yeah. No, it's interesting to see, uh, to think about what monuments mean to people today, you know. And you begin by saying that the idea behind the book was for it to be a bridge between popular literature and um, dense scholarly material. What sort of an audience are you writing for? I mean, and how does one be begin to approach this kind of writing? Well, I mean, I think my goal was to try to write for, obviously, an English language audience. Anyone who's fairly educated, I mean, has at least a 
12th level education, perhaps, who's interested in history and monuments. There's scholarship that is, you know, very dense, not very easily readable, often even to other scholars, because scholarship becomes so self-contained so that once, you know, you're only talking to three people. There didn't seem much point to writing something like that. Being an American teaching Indian art history means that I've had to learn how to talk to a audience who doesn't necessarily have much knowledge to begin with. Right. I think that's probably been helpful in, in, in the way that I've approached the material. I've always felt that unless you make the material accessible, hmm. it will just make people think that it is not interesting, that it's too esoteric. The more people you can engage, the more interesting it is, not only for maybe the reader, but me as well. Yes. And, you know, in the current sort of religious, political undercurrents, um, what does it mean for an Islamic monument to be this popular? And how does it become relevant for young scholars to study it today? That's, again, a, a very interesting question. I think as long as people don't believe it's a Gupta monument, <laughs> to understand that there is a great deal of creativity. If you read history, not biased history, but straightforward history, you realize that there was a good deal of cooperation among various communities and religious groups. And certainly this is the case that we had in Sultanate and then later in local India. One of the things that I have found extremely wonderful and um, really in a very positive manner is that when I first started working on this material a long time ago, there was virtually no one in India who was interested in what I was doing. And I find increasingly today, especially young people, young burgeoning scholars, young students are very interested in this material. And it strikes me as very hopeful in an age when there is tremendous religious contention about this material. And I sometimes think maybe at least the younger generations, graduate school or even undergraduates, are perhaps seeing through hmm. some of the material that, that, it, that is so often in the news. Earlier, there was virtually no interest in what I was doing, but now I find quite a bit of interest. And I see that as kind of a bright light. Yes, this is very inspiring, for sure. Thank you so much for talking to us, Kathy. I've really enjoyed our conversation. And your book makes a very interesting read. It should really be taken as an example and could in into how one could begin to look at and study one particular monument. Um, thank you so much for that. Thank you. You are so welcome. And many, many thanks to you, too. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Do not miss to like, share and subscribe to our podcast. Available on all your favorite podcast apps.